This morning we have gathered to worship God, celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, and grow in our obedience that comes from faith in his life, death, and resurrection. Everything we do in our service, in our worship service, is seeking to accomplish one of these purposes. The singing, the praying, the scripture reading, the opportunity to give, and the preaching, each of these elements helping us toward our goal of worship. And it should be noted that I'm not the main preacher today. It was already said, but I'm sharing this time slot with what we call the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, or Communion. The bread and the juice, of course, representing the body and blood of our Savior who gave up his life on our behalf. And the symbolism of the Lord's table is a better preacher than I am. So my role is simply to prepare us to partake in this gospel presentation that's down in front of me. In a few minutes, I will do this with a short sermon. Today will be a shorter sermon than normal, which means that we need to get started quickly. So I've asked, uh, I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 30, if you haven't already, If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, you can find this passage of Scripture on page 711. Those Bibles are underneath the chairs in front of you. Isaiah chapter 30 is a woe, spelled W-O-E. A woe is a pronouncement of judgment on a group of people. This is a common sub-genre within biblical prophecy. In chapter 30... The group that God, through Isaiah, is pronouncing judgment upon is a group of his own people, the Israelites, who are doing a bad thing. They're seeking shelter in Egypt. I know that doesn't sound so bad, but we'll find out in just a minute why that's such a bad thing. They're seeking shelter in Egypt because they're scared. And the reason that they're scared is because of the Assyrians. At this point in history, Egypt has ceased to be a real world power, and Assyria is well on the rise. This prophecy was being written near uh, around 700 BC. This is about 300 years after King David was king of the united monarchy of Israel. The kingdom divided under his grandson, And the northern kingdom was eventually wiped out by the Assyrians in 722. So this is around 20 years after that. And Assyria is brutally conquering nation after nation, having wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom is frightened and wondering what to do. But some of them think they know what they should do. Their bright idea, their Worldly wisdom has led them to the conclusion that they should go to Egypt, make an alliance. Instead of seeking security in God, they've run into the arms of another nation, a nation that has other gods. Let's name these nations by their gods to illustrate the absurdity of what Israel is doing. Ashur is attacking Ashur is on the rise, so let's go see if Ra or Horus or Osiris can help us. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, doesn't even cross their minds. 
Ladies and gentlemen, this is the epitome of idolatry. They're seeking something that God wants to provide for them in some other God. And this is something that we, if we're honest with ourselves, struggle with every day. Most of our idols are not bad things. The Egyptians had a bunch of gods with funny-sounding names, but the Israelites were chasing an idol that sounds all too familiar to us. This idol is called safety or security or protection. So I'll ask you, where do you go to feel safe? Probably not Egypt, but somewhere to someone or something, your health, your bank account, your family, all of those are good things. But sometimes we try to replace God with those things, don't we? This passage shows the idolatry of our hearts by showing us the idolatry of the Israelites. And we get to see three actions, two actions that we do and one that God does. The first of ours is that we run away from God. This is a tendency that all sinners, all idolaters have. So let's look at the text instead of just talking about it. Look at Isaiah chapter 30. I'll read the first eight verses for you. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation." For their princes are at Zone, and, and their ambassadors arrive at Haines. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. The oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev. Through a land of distress and anguish, from where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys, and their treasures on camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Now go write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. There's a lot going on in those verses, and there's more details than there is time to explain in these few minutes that we have together. So I'll point out to you just a few quick facts. The first few verses are just saying what I've been explaining to you. The Israelites are scared, and they're going to Egypt to seek security and safety from Pharaoh. But it's not God's plan, and God does not approve. Verse 5 mentions that Egypt will be of no help to the Israelites. Verse 6 mentions the Israelites carrying riches and treasures essentially across the desert, This was going to be used to bribe the Egyptians to get help from them. And that is some strong devotion, isn't it? That is is commitment. That's religion. Carrying gifts across the desert, even though there's lions and vipers in the way. In verse 7, God calls Egypt Rahab, which has special significance. Some of you might recognize or remember that Rahab is uh, the name of a a sea monster in many ancient Near Eastern legends. 
In the case of Jewish folklore, it seems that Rahab was associated with the Red Sea, which God, of course, used the Red Sea to destroy the Egyptians and Pharaoh and his army at the beginning of the Exodus. In different uh, modern translations of the Bible, this line is translated as Rahab who sits still, Rahab who just sits, and also as Rahab the do-nothing. Isaiah is pointing this out to us so that we will not only see the wrongness of the Israelites going to Egypt, but also the uselessness of going to Egypt. Idolatry isn't only sin, it's pointless, profitless. And the same is true for us today. It's not only wrong for us to seek protection outside of God, it's pointless. A preacher that I appreciate says it this way, idols do not satisfy because idols cannot satisfy. Is your security in your job? Or you could get laid off or injured or the company could go under or a thousand other things that we can't even predict that are outside of our control. Do you feel safe because we live in a stable nation? Well, so far, every world empire has toppled. Right now, the United States is following in Rome's footsteps of sexual rebellion that, if left unchecked, will result in implosion. Or maybe you feel safe and and you've convinced yourself that you're safe because God won't let anything bad happen to you because you have faith in him. If that's you, you just need to read your Bible because here's a list of people that had great faith, yet they suffered greatly in this life. Job, Joseph, Moses, Jeremiah, Abel, Paul, Peter, Elijah, Habakkuk, John, Stephen, James, just to name a few of them. Here's one more, Jesus. Our faith doesn't prevent our suffering in this world. We're all looking for temporal security. The Israelites were doing it by going to Egypt. We do it in a variety of ways. It's wrong, it's offensive to God, God who wants to be your security and your safety, but it's also pointless because none of those things can really protect us. So that's our first action. We run from God. The second is that we refuse to listen to God. And this comes from the next section of verses, if you'd like to follow along in your copy of Scripture, verses 9 through 17. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile, and have relied on them. Therefore, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly. 
in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a sherd will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and in rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a fog on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. Not only do worshipers, idol worshipers run away from God, they refuse to listen to God. Verses 10 and 11 use hyperbole to describe our attitude towards God's word when we are smitten with our idols. It's as if we open a Bible or walk up to our pastor and say, don't tell me that. I don't want to hear it from you. It's the the hands covering the ears, fingers in the ears attitude. I don't want to hear that. Sounds a little bit like modern, shall we say, Squishy Christianity that just wants to talk about God's love all the time. Not realizing that God is a God not only of love, as we read about, but also of justice and righteousness. Don't talk about hell. Don't talk about judgment. God is love. Yeah, God's love. And and you know what he loves more than anything? Since God is perfect, he loves and values the most valuable thing in the universe, himself. And that doesn't make him an egomaniac. It makes him perfect. If he got more pleasure from something other than himself, then that other thing would be God, worthy of our worship, worthy of our devotion. He chooses to love what is lovely because God is God. And God is perfect. So he chooses to love what is lovely, which is himself. And since he loves himself, he exercises his wrath against those who hate him. And this is good. The squishy Christians aren't the only ones who cover their ears at certain teachings of the Bible. I'll tell you one thing. We shouldn't be laughing at the God is love crowd if we have a a secret sin that we know about and won't tell anyone about? Is there a more obvious way to cover your ears than to indulge in sin that is expressly forbidden and poisonous and to not confess it ever to anyone in your church family? It's easy to chuckle at the theological errors of others. It's hard to love people that you live with every day. It's hard to set up a life that faithfully attends church and faithfully serves at church and faithfully gives generously to the church and is committed to the mission of disciple-making. Israel had their idols. The squishy Christians have their idols, but let's, let's not laugh at them and admit that we have ours. I have mine. And believe it or not, I'm not trying to crack your head open with the Bible this morning. I don't think that's what Isaiah is trying to do either. Before I had kids, before I was even married, I was living with one of my pastors in 
western Iowa. He had lots of young children, mostly girls. And as I'm the youngest one in my family, so I didn't get to see very much parenting of young kids when I grew up because I was the youngest one. So it was a good experience for me to watch godly parents and how they deal with their young children. There's one time their four-year-old girl had some pain in her foot, told, told everyone about it. Dad comes to look at it and says, looks like you've got a splinter. Lay down. The girl obeyed, not knowing what was coming. Dad starts to dig around and squeeze and try to get the splinter out. And the girl's face had a totally different expression when she felt the pain that was coming from her father. She said, Daddy, you're hurting me. Of course, he knew it would hurt, but he wasn't doing it for no reason. This text is trying to dig out a thorn that is sunk deep into our foot. And I'm not trying to hurt anybody for no reason, but I'm willing to hurt you to get the thorn out. Even though it's painful to confess our idols, our passage doesn't leave us without comfort. We've looked at two actions so far, both of them belonging to us, both of them not making us look very good at all, but there's one more action and it belongs to God. God is waiting for us. Follow along as I read verses 18 through 22. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. That's not what you're expecting. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. And you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. Is anyone longing for the day described in these verses when our idols no longer entice us and what we want is God? Free from the allurement of worldly pleasure that is fleeting, this passage, although it is originally addressed to the nation of Israel at a specific moment in their history, it reveals to us timeless knowledge about who God is. What kind of God is Yahweh? What kind of God do we have the opportunity to worship and serve? We worship a God who is longing to be gracious and waiting to have compassion. He wants to forgive. He won't clear the guilty. He won't ignore the rebellion of our hearts. But if you confess your sin... He will forgive you, and he can do this and remain a God of justice because of the cross, because of what the table symbolizes this morning. 
His body was broken and his blood was spilled so that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I know that there are people here who haven't accepted the gospel, the free gift of Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you that you can do that today. You can do it right now. You don't need my permission. You don't need Pastor Jim's permission. Confess your sin and confess your belief in Jesus as your sacrifice. If you truly believe, you're truly saved forever. Normally we have a big idea. Today we have a big question. What are you waiting for? Come to Christ. Come to Christ and be satisfied. What are your idols doing for you? Misery. You're going to suffer in this life, so you want to suffer for the one who's going to make your sufferings worth it. Romans 8 says that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Come to Christ so that your suffering can have meaning. Come to Christ so that your pain can have a purpose. Come to Christ and look forward to the glory that will one day be revealed. Although you don't need my permission to come to Christ, anyone's permission, we'd still love to hear about it and we'd love to help you if you need help. You can come talk to us after the service. Myself, Pastor Jim, one of the deacons, many people here would love to have a conversation with you. Stop by the information center, track us down, interrupt us, do whatever it takes. We'd love to hear if you have any questions about the gospel, about God's word, about our church, about the table. Those of you who are already believers and planning on participating in the table this morning, my goal was to prepare you. Maybe some of you have sin or idols to confess. You also shouldn't leave today without talking to someone. Sermons are meant to launch us into action and into obedience. We all have room to grow, and there's nothing weird about being vulnerable with your church family. So I ask you also, both believers and unbelievers, what are you waiting for? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to celebrate the gospel, and we're grateful for what the bread and the cup symbolize. I ask that you would reveal yourself through the preaching, through the elements of the worship service to any heart that needs to hear about you. We ask the Holy Spirit to work, and we trust that he will. Thank you for pursuing us and longing for us even when we run from you and and when we refuse to listen to you. Thank you for being a God who waits and is compassionate. We pray that you would bless our time at the table and help us to remember well the gospel. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.